We continue our studies this morning in the Duties of Christian Fellowship, a manual for church members. And I would like to give a brief word of explanation as to why I am teaching today. This is the first Lord's Day of the month of June. And those of you who are members and friends of Trinity Baptist Church know that on the first Lord's Day of each month, Pastor Chansky has been teaching us through the 1689 Confession of Faith. Pastor Chansky is sick. He does not have the coronavirus, but he has not been well these past days. And so we as his fellow pastors judge that it would be wise for him to not have responsibilities today. So that's why I am here on this first Lord's Day Sunday school class of this month and not Pastor Chansky. So this morning, as I've already said, we continue our studies of rules for walking in fellowship with respect to other believers. And we are using the Puritan John Owen, his treatise, The Duties of Christian Fellowship. And over the past several Lord's Days, we've considered Owen's fourth rule in this section of his treatise, this section entitled Walking in Fellowship with Respect to Other Believers. And his fourth rule was this, believers must maintain an unremitting care and effort to preserve unity, both in general and in particular. And by way of review, having considered that rule, we turned to the word of God and learned about the nature of biblical unity. And we have seen from the scriptures that there is spiritual unity among the people of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. We have learned that there is also ecclesiastical or church unity among the people of God, according to the Bible. And thirdly, there is civil unity regarding the things of this life among the people of God. And then in previous classes, we considered some motives for maintaining and cultivating unity. And the first motive was this, that the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles were very earnest in their prayers and in their teaching regarding Christian unity. And we, likewise, should be very earnest in this matter, in both our praying and in our instruction concerning Christian unity. We also learned from the scriptures, and in particular Psalm 133, that there are gracious results and heavenly comforts, as Owen wrote, which flow from preserving unity in the local church. And of course, one of those great blessings is the promise of eternal life, where there is Christian unity amongst the brethren. And last Lord's Day, we continued our studies by observing from the scriptures the clear teaching of God. And it is the clear teaching of God indeed in the word of God regarding our moral duty to be in subjection to all authorities whom God has placed over us. And I stated last Lord's Day, and I stated again this morning, we must not permit our emotions to cloud or to guide or to control our thinking, our judgment, our speaking, and our actions on this important matter. 
I stated that we must rather have the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient Word of God instruct and guide us, regulate our thinking, our judgment, our speaking, and our actions. And so as we embarked on this study of submitting to those authorities that God has placed over us last Lord's Day, we focused on this matter of obeying the civil authorities that God has placed over us. And we first considered some foundational truths. And I did that, of course, very purposefully, because those foundational truths must be remembered in order to correctly understand our responsibility as citizens to submit to civil authorities. And if, as you are hearing this by way of review, you're having internal knee-jerk reactions, I would challenge you to take your Bible and to prayerfully read through Romans 13. I became aware of someone who said Romans 13, 1 through 7 is just showing a contrast how bad civil government can be compared to how Christians should live. It's not an exact quote, but to that effect. And that's, that's an incorrect understanding of Romans 13, 1 through 7. So first, we looked at some foundational truths. I won't mention all of them this morning, but briefly, we considered and reminded ourselves that God is the creator of all men, and God requires obedience from all men. Of course, we are sinners and are not at all perfectly obedient, but God requires obedience from all men, and Christians heartily obey all the word of God, not to earn forgiveness, not to earn salvation, but they heartily obey all of the word of God because they delight in the law of God and the inward man. So they delight in all of the precepts of God's word, including Romans 13, 1 through 7. And then we consider the foundational truth that all men will be judged by God for their words and their deeds. And we need to remember that as we consider submission to, subjection to those in civil authority over us. And then I turned our attention to Romans 13, 1 through 7. And in those opening words of that chapter, we read, Let every soul be in subjection to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. And the powers that be are ordained of God, and therefore he that resists the power withstands the ordinances of God, and they that withstand shall receive to themselves judgment. That's not the whole passage, just the opening words. And we saw from that passage that all human authorities, including civil authorities, are ordained by God. This is not saying that all civil authorities are righteous. This is not saying that at all, but they are nevertheless ordained by God. This is not saying that God approves of the unrighteousness of civil authorities, their abuse of power. It's not saying that God is not the author of sin. God does not approve of the sins of any man, and certainly not the sins of civil authorities. But nevertheless, 
civil authorities, human authorities, are ordained by God. And all men are commanded, therefore, to subject themselves, place themselves under human authorities, civil authorities. Rulers, civil authorities, are ministers of God. That does not mean that all civil authorities always do what is right. It doesn't mean that at all. But from the scriptures we see that God in history used various civil authorities, kings, nations, their soldiers, to execute his judgment upon those who were wrongdoers. God even did that with his own people Israel, bringing down armies upon them, using those individuals as his minister of judgment upon the people of Israel at times. So rulers, civil authorities are ministers of God. And then we also learned last Lord's Day, Christians must be in subjection to civil authorities for conscience sake to maintain a good conscience. Well, then we considered ways in which Christians can and should honor civil authorities. First of all, Christians in their heart, Christians in their speech, must manifest goodwill and grace toward civil authorities. We should not be speaking sinful words about our civil authorities, even when they are unjust. Christians must remember God's grace that has been shown to them, and then relate properly to civil authorities over them. Christians must remember that other saints through history, through the ages, have been in subjection to ungodly civil authorities. We are not the first Christians on this planet that have had to submit themselves to ungodly authorities. And then we looked at the supreme example of the Lord Jesus Christ from 1 Peter chapter 2. He suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. The greatest tragedy there at Golgotha, where the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, was put through a mock trial, was crucified unjustly, by the Romans and by the Jews. We are to remember him. We are to follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He committed himself to him that judges righteously. He bore our own sins. He bore our sins in his body upon the tree. And so we are to live righteously because of all that he has done for us. So in conclusion, last Lord's Day, I stated that the Bible, God's infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient word, makes it abundantly clear that God, and here I quote Pastor Carlson, God requires biblically informed, conscientious obedience to authority from everyone, especially Christians. When a civil authority or any human authority explicitly commands us to do that which is sinful, to explicitly disobey God's law, then we are to 
obey God rather than men. Otherwise, God makes it plain what we are to do. So that's a quick review. And now, moving on to some new material, I would like to give a postscript not to last Sunday's message in the adult Bible class, but to this brief series that has addressed Christian unity, a postscript regarding our duty of preserving unity among the brethren. And so I begin with this new material, this postscript, with a sobering and necessary reminder. A sobering and necessary reminder. We must remember that when the maintenance and cultivation of biblical unity in the church is neglected, is eroded, serious and grievous consequences ensue. That's the result. Serious, grievous consequences when we do not cultivate and promote and maintain biblical unity in the local church. What are some of those serious and grievous consequences when there is disunity? The first is this. Dishonor is brought to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And when we think of that, that should motivate us to do everything we can biblically by the power of the Holy Spirit to maintain and cultivate biblical unity among ourselves. Because if we do not have such biblical unity, we will bring dishonor to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. First Corinthians 3 and verse 1. <clears throat> and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with meat, for you were not yet able to bear it. No, not even now are you able, for you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you jealousy and strife, are you not carnal? And do you not walk after the manner of men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not men? And there we stop our reading. You see, sinful jealousy among brethren Sinful strife, arguing, contentions, unresolved disagreements, sinful, carnal, fleshly, worldly behavior produces division and disunity among the brethren in the church, and that the world sees. You say to yourself, well, how does the world see it? They're outside this building. They're not in our midst. Well, in one way or another, sooner or later, they will become aware of it. They will even see it. Of course, there are those from the world who come into the church on the Lord's Day under ordinary circumstances when there's no coronavirus. And we're glad that they come in because if they're unconverted, they need to hear the gospel. 
And they are often more wise in their understanding of things than many times Christians are. And if they see some sort of uh, heated debate amongst some individuals after a church service, they may wonder what is going on. The fact is, is the unconverted, the onlooking world, they do eventually become aware of such divisions within churches. And this brings contempt upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It causes them to scoff, at least in their hearts, scoff at Christ, scoff at his gospel. And we need to remember that and be motivated to promote and cultivate unity. But secondly, churches and the people of God are harmed and sometimes even ruined by disunity. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. Galatians 5 and verse 14. Churches and the people of God are harmed and even sometimes ruined. Galatians 5.14 For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you do not be consumed one of another. There we stop our reading. Jeffrey Wilson, the Bible commentator, commented upon this passage and stated that Christians in churches must, here I quote him, take heed... For the moral savagery that delights to bite and devour can lead to nothing but mutual destruction. And even defenders of the truth must be careful about their spirit and manner in controversy. End quote. So you see, sometimes you can have two Christian brothers in the church. And they hold strong judgments about a particular matter. We're not talking about the non-negotiable doctrines of the Christian faith and life, but some secondary issue. And this one believes very strongly that his judgment is rooted in Scripture. This one has an opposing view, believing it is rooted in Scripture. And the two can end up having this contention, you see, believing they're defending truth, and maybe to some degree they are. But Jeffrey Wilson points out, when you're doing that, you need to be careful about your heart, your spirit, your manner in such controversies. You don't want to end up being like savages, biting one another, as it were, devouring one another. You see, churches and the people of God are harmed by such disunity and division and strife, and sometimes even ruined. So it's a sobering and necessary reminder. But the third sobering and necessary reminder is this. Confusion, instability, and evil is brought upon the saints. I just said that the people of God can be harmed. This is sort of an expansion of that. Confusion, instability, and evil is brought upon the saints. Turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 and verse 14. James 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy 
and faction in your heart. Do not glory and lie not against the truth. This wisdom is not a wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is confusion and every vile deed. And there we stop our reading. So what is James reminding us? We must put away the sins of bitterness towards others. We must mortify it by the Spirit of God. Jealousy, envy, faction, division, selfish ambition. Because, James wrote, wherever these sins exist, wherever they exist, they always produce confusion and every vile deed. Instability as well. Notice that in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is confusion in every vile deed. So we must be on our guard. We must be on our guard and not allow such sins to take root in our hearts and to then be manifested in our dealings with one another. So those are sobering and necessary reminders. But now, secondly, by way of postscript, responsibilities or duties which we must fulfill in order to cultivate unity. Responsibilities or duties which we must fulfill in order to cultivate unity. First of all, we must labor by prayer and faith to have our hearts and lives thoroughly seasoned. Those are John Owen's words, good words. Thoroughly seasoned with biblical love. Of course, we've commented even this morning about the necessity of praying that God would give us Christian unity. Here, I'm saying we need to labor by prayer and faith to have our hearts and lives thoroughly seasoned with biblical love. Turn to Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. Romans 12 and verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. In love of the brethren, be tenderly affectioned one to another. In honor, preferring one another. You see, what was Paul writing to the Christians in the city of Rome? Christians must love one another sincerely. There should be no hypocrisy. We should not smile and say with warmth, Oh, it's so good to see you, brother so-and-so. So good to see you, sister so-and-so. When in the heart, there's actually ill will. That's hypocrisy. Paul is saying, let our love be without hypocrisy. Let it be sincere, truthful, from the heart, love for one another. Furthermore, Christians must love one another with warmth and goodwill. It's not some cold, formal, official love. It is to be tender. It is to be affectionate to one another. 
And thirdly, our love must be with humility. We are to love one another, Paul says. Also, we are to have honor, show honor towards one another, preferring one another. That means I mustn't take the first place. I mustn't always be the one in control of everything, in control of this conversation, in control of this fellowship. No, in honor, we are to prefer one another. We cannot do that if we do not have the grace of humility clothing our hearts and our lives. So we must love one another sincerely. We must love one another with warmth and goodwill. We must love one another with humility. John Calvin stated concerning this very passage that nothing is more opposed to brotherly concord, that is, peace and unity, than the contempt which arises from pride. Nothing is more opposed to brotherly concord than the contempt which arises from pride, while each esteems others less and exalts himself. You see what Calvin was stating concerning this matter of love, the matter of humility. We need to be clothed with humility as we love one another. And we must pray for that grace wrought by the Spirit to be a reality in our hearts and lives and in our church. Turn now to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. Ephesians 4 and verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving each other even as God also in Christ forgave you. Be you therefore imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love even as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for an odor of a sweet smell. We stop there at that point. Six sins are identified by the Apostle Paul in this passage which we have read, which are contrary to and as poison to biblical love, biblical kindness, a forgiving heart. What are those six sins? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, railing, and malice. Those are to be put away from you. You are to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the best ways to do that, Paul really gives us the clue, really it's explicit here, how can we put away these particular sins by thinking especially upon this reality that God in Jesus Christ has forgiven you all your sins. When you stop and think about all of your sins, the sins you are conscious of, of course, there are numerous sins that you are not conscious of, many failures to do what God commands you to do that you're ignorant of. God is not ignorant of them. 
God sees them all, of course. All of the sins you commit, the sins you commit by not doing what you should do, God sees it all. But when you bring before your own mind, your limited understanding, what you do know about all of your real sins, the past sins before you were a Christian, the sins you've committed since you've been a Christian, the knowledge that in the future you will yet sin before you go to glory. When you think about all of those sins and you say to yourself, God, omniscient God, almighty God, has graciously forgiven me all of my sins in Jesus Christ. How can I then have a hard heart an unforgiving spirit, bitterness or wrath or malice toward any other Christian, toward any other sinner in this congregation. How can that be? And that's what Paul is saying here in these words in Ephesians. We need to think upon the reality of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that changes your perspective regarding the sins of others, regarding those hurts that others maybe have really inflicted upon you? What about all of the hurt you inflicted upon the Son of God as he hung upon the cross of Golgotha? You can, as a Christian, walk in love toward your brethren when you remember how the Lord Jesus Christ has loved you and still loves you, how he gave himself up for you as a sacrifice for your sin, and how he presently intercedes for you from his throne in glory. Thinking upon those biblical truths will impact your affections, emotions, perspectives, and the way you relate to others. So that is the first responsibility. As a postscript, we must indeed labor by prayer and faith to have our hearts and lives thoroughly seasoned with biblical love. But a second responsibility is this. We must carefully watch ourselves for the first signs of sins which produce disunity and then mortify those sins. We have to be on our guard. When I was in the military, there was a phrase that you were told to think about in a time of warfare. Stay alert, stay alive. You want to stay alive? You need to stay alert. Well, as a Christian, we need to stay alert and stay alive spiritually. We need to be alert for the first signs of sins which produce disunity, the first signs of sins in our own hearts, and then mortify those sins, kill them. In the military again, you do not kill your enemy in a time of war, your enemy will kill you. Spiritually speaking, you must use spiritual weapons to kill your sin. They are your enemy. They're not your friend. Turn to Proverbs 17 and verse 14. Proverbs 17, verse 14. The beginning of strife is as when one lets out water. Therefore, leave off contention before there is quarreling. 
The beginning of strife is as when one lets out water. Therefore, leave off contention before there is quarreling. There is a book written by David McCulloch, the American historian, called The Johnstown Flood. I've read that book, along with many of his other books. And Johnstown is in western Pennsylvania. This took place, if I remember correctly, in the late 1800s. Maybe it was the early 1900s. And there was an earthen dam that held back a large reservoir of water. And the earthen dam gave way. Of course, it began just in a small way, a small uh, slight lowering of the top of the dam. There had been a lot of snow that preceding winter. Then the winter snow was melting. Then there was a lot of constant rain, so the reservoir was very high. So the earthen dam started to give way. And of course, it didn't stop then. It just continued to give way. And that entire reservoir emptied into the Connemaw River Valley and then swept through the city of Johnstown and killed thousands of people and destroyed everything. It was really very horrific. But that's what the writer of Proverbs is saying. The beginning of strife is as when one lets out water. That's just one illustration of what is meant here by the writer of this proverb. That once that water starts to let out, you can't stop it. And that's why he then goes on to say, Solomon here, Proverbs 17, 14, Therefore, leave off contention before there is quarreling. Stop it. Stop it at the beginning. Charles Bridges, commenting upon this proverb, wrote the following insightful words. Thus fearfully has the beginning of strife issued in the murder of thousands. You see what Bridges is saying? It doesn't take much. You don't stop the contention. It just continues. Fearfully has the beginning of strife issued in the murder of thousands. See Judges chapter 12. And even in the desolation of kingdoms. See Second Chronicles 10. No less destructive is it in ordinary life. One provoking word brings on another. Every retort widens the breach. Seldom, when we have heard the first word, do we hear the last. An inundation, a flood of evil is poured in that lays desolate peace, comfort, and conscience. Does not grace teach us the Christian victory to keep down the expression of resentment and rather to bear provocation than to break the bond of unity? End quote. You see what Bridges wrote in those final words. Does not grace, God's grace, teach us the Christian victory? What victory? To keep down, to put down that expression of resentment that's starting to rise out of your heart. To put it down, to suppress it. How? To remember, to bear the provocation rather than break the bond of unity. 
Unity is more important than your personal feelings. Unity is far more important than what you may have experienced by way of reproach. Bear the provocation. Take the wrongdoing. Don't break the bond of unity. Turn to Mark chapter 9 and verse 33. Again, we must carefully watch ourselves, carefully be on guard for the first signs of sin within our own hearts and lives that might produce disunity and then mortify those sins. Mark 9, verse 33. And they, that is the disciples and Jesus, came to Capernaum. And when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you reasoning on the way? But they held their peace. For they had disputed one with another on the way, who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said unto them, If any man would be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. We'll stop our reading there. You see, the twelve disciples, they were not watching. They were not guarding their hearts. They were not guarding their tongues. They were not putting a bit and bridle in their mouths upon what they were saying one with another. They were arguing with one another as they were walking along the way. Jesus was either before them or after them. He clearly was aware to some degree. Of course, he's omniscient, but he could overhear probably some of the tones and words. And so he asked them, wanting to bring them to conviction of sin, wanting to bring them to repentance. He graciously asked them, what were you talking about along the way? And, of course, they were all embarrassed. They were not embarrassed when they were doing the act of sinning with their tongues. But now they're embarrassed, and they're quiet. And then Jesus teaches them, If any man would be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You see, they should have stopped They should have stopped their conversation. At least one of those 12, doesn't matter who, should have at least said, wait, wait, brethren, what are we doing here? What are we doing? This is wrong. This is sinful. They didn't do that. They should have. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage, wrote these words. It is an awful fact, whether we like to allow it or not, that pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally fancy that we deserve something better than we have. Pride, this is still J.C. Ryle, pride is an old sin found in the garden. Pride is a subtle sin. Pride is a most soul-ruining sin. Of all garments, none is so graceful, none wears so well, and none is so rare as true humility. End quote. Brethren, we need to kill the sin of pride in our own hearts. 
We need to take up the sword of the Spirit, the weapon of all prayer, trust in Jesus Christ, and we need to earnestly, purposefully, persistently kill this awful sin of pride. And we need the grace of humility in its place. So we must carefully watch ourselves. But a third duty or responsibility, we must act wisely in order to resolve and remove the first appearance of any division. And then if we're unable to do that, we may need to take the matter further, according to the scriptures. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. Matthew 5 and verse 23. Matthew 5, 23. If therefore you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has aught against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Notice the importance and priority which the Lord Jesus Christ gave to the resolving and healing of breaches between brethren. Notice the importance and the priority. Offering sacrifices at the altar were mandated by the scriptures of the Old Testament. But Jesus said here in Matthew 5, if you're going to offer your gift at the altar and there you remember, my brother has something against me. Jesus said even that important act of offering a gift at the altar is not as important as you going and resolving your problem with your brother. You see here he gives importance and priority to this matter of resolving and healing breaches between brethren. Reconciliation, peace, and unity were of a higher priority than offering sacrifices on the altar at this particular instance. Christian love for a brother or sister, and more importantly, a humbly remembrance of the Savior's love for you, will then enable you to go and be reconciled to your brother. Now, I realize there are times when such reconciliation is attempted and it's not achieved. We see that, as far as we know from the scriptures, between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. They had a sharp contention with each other. They went their separate ways. We don't know that they ever really reconciled. Maybe they did, but the scriptures don't reveal it. But at that point... There was no reconciliation. There was a strong contention between them. The Bible gives us realistic understanding of living the Christian life. It's not approving of that contention that existed between them. But there it is, you see. So sometimes, indeed, there is not reconciliation in this life. I realize that. Sometimes, indeed, you try to reconcile, but the other individual refuses. Sometimes there are other practical reasons why it cannot be affected. I don't have any in mind right now, but there can be. I understand all of that. 
But generally, this is what we should endeavor to do because unity and peace in the local church is extremely important in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ and the eyes of God. But sometimes it does mean you have to take further steps. Perhaps you need to go and speak to a pastor in the church to have him help you with the reconciliation. That may be another step. There could be other steps beyond that. But the point is, we should endeavor to guard our hearts and to do all we can to maintain, promote, cultivate Christian unity, Christian peace within the church. But a fourth duty and responsibility, we must daily strike at the root of all division by striving for universal conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must daily, as individual Christians, members of the church, friends of the church, strike at the root of all division by striving for universal conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Romans 13 and verse 13. Romans 13 and verse 13. Let us walk honorably, Romans 13, 13, as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and wantonness, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and do not make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now notice from this passage, Paul mentions some gross outward forms of sin, reveling in drunkenness, sexual promiscuity and wantonness. You see, those are very obvious sins. And Paul is saying this should not, of course, be named among you as brethren. You are to not indulge these sins. You're not to in any way participate in these sins. You are to put them away. And you are, in verse 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and not make provision to fulfill those particular lusts. You're not to put yourself in a place of temptation. If you were a former drunk, And God saved you, the Lord saved you, but you realize drinking alcohol is a strong temptation to you still? Don't put yourself in a situation where you would be tempted to drink and get drunk. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof, like getting drunk or sexual immorality. Don't have a computer or a smartphone which has no protective filtering system, no protective accountability system, so that you can then fulfill those sinful lusts of the heart and mind, those sinful sexual lusts. Paul is saying here... Do not make provision for them. Take steps. But notice, strife and jealousy are named by Paul in the same phrase, the same sentence, 
with drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and wantonness. Oh yeah, those are awful sins, and they are awful sins. But Paul, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wants us to understand strife and jealousy are not okay. Sometimes we think those gross outward sins, oh, they're awful. Well, they are awful. They are awful. Having a heart sin of adultery is sin indeed of adultery. Actual committing of adultery is, of course, worse than that heart sin. Jesus doesn't excuse the heart sin. If you have those thoughts in your heart, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've already committed adultery in your heart. But, of course, to actually do the act is worse. Having murderous words is sinful, very sinful. But taking out a gun and killing somebody is worse But you see, we often think of sins like strife and jealousy in a different category. But Paul, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit in Romans 13, verse 13, when he wrote, let us walk honorably as in the day, not committing these awful sins, he included the sins of strife and jealousy. Strife and jealousy, they are wicked sins. Paul used a vivid metaphor in verse 14, that of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ as one would put on the royal robe of a king. And listen to Professor John Murray's comments about this very matter, this metaphor. Here I quote him, to put on Christ is to be identified with Christ, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. It is to be united to Jesus Christ in the likeness of his resurrection life. Nothing less than the complete negation of vice and the perfection of purity and virtue exemplified in Christ make up the habit required of a believer. You see what he's saying? He's saying we need to be united to Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. We're not only united to him in his death, but in his resurrection, united to him in his resurrection life. And you see, being joined to him, united to him, clothed with him, we then have the power to indeed put away these sins, mortify these sins, including strife and jealousy. And then Professor Murray writes this, when we think of Christ as holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners... We see the total contrast between the vices described in verse 13 and the pattern of verse 14. You see, Jesus Christ, of course, never sinned. There is never strife and jealousy in his heart. There is never, of course, drunkenness or sexual immorality. But our focus is upon those two sins that create disunity amongst the brethren, strife and jealousy. The Lord Jesus Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He never sinned with strife 
or jealousy at any point. And so, brethren, strife, contention, insistence upon the maintenance of your personal liberties at the expense of Christian unity is wrong. You should not be insisting, this is my Christian liberty. I don't care if it creates problems with other brethren in the church. It is my Christian liberty. That is carnality. That is strife. That is wrong. That is sinful. Do not do that. Making secondary issues, primary issues, contrary to the teaching of Scripture, and saying, no, this is what I will do. I believe this. And if you're not with me, then you're against me. Carnality, fleshiness, sinfulness, contention, disunity. We're not to make secondary issues, primary issues, contrary to the teaching of the scriptures. These are sins and behaviors which war against the maintenance of Christ honoring unity in the local church. We must mortify these sins by the power of the Spirit. We must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We must think of Jesus Christ, the living Savior. We must think of him in his life on this earth. We must think of him as in his life, his resurrection, life, and glory. We must think about the way he lived. And we must cry out and say, Lord, clothe me with yourself that I will be holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Be like you, always going about doing good. Be like you, a loving Savior. Be like you, a gracious Savior. Be like you, a patient Savior. Be like you, a long-suffering Savior. Be like you, indeed, a bold, courageous Savior without sin. Lord, clothe me with yourself, your graces, your spirit, that I would follow in your footsteps, always remembering that you've left me yourself as an example, that I am not to revile when I've been reviled, that I'm to suffer patiently when I've been wronged, that I am to have a heart of goodwill towards my brethren here in the church, indeed towards people all around me. Lord Jesus, clothe me with your perfect righteousness. Help me to put on you, the Lord Jesus Christ. That will not happen if you do not exercise faith in Jesus Christ. And for those who are listening who are not yet Christians, and you know in your conscience you're not, you may like a lot of what you've heard this morning, you may agree with it, but you know you're living for yourself. You need to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ from your heart right where you are now. Say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Change me. Deliver me. Forgive me. Cleanse me in your blood spilt on the cross of Golgotha. Make me a new creature in Christ, in yourself. Clothe me with your righteousness. Clothe me, Lord Jesus. That's what you need to do. And dear Christian, you should be praying daily, Lord, I need you. Sin always, always goes over us. But our plea is this. Jesus Christ has died. 
Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Yes, I have many sins still as a Christian, but Jesus Christ paid the price for all of my sins, and he is my risen Savior. So we need to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to live in this way, in order to have unity one with another. The Lord is able to do it. May God help us to do it so that it is a stark contrast to all of the civil disunity, all of the grievous disunity that's in the country, in the world. Yes, there have been wicked things, evil things, sinful things that have been done. I'm not discounting that. But we need to pray that God would help us to be lights set upon a hill a city set upon a hill, bright shining lights to be seen by the world about us. Well, let's close now in prayer. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would help us as your people to put into practice all that we have learned from your word this morning, that indeed we would know greater measures of Christian unity in our midst, And that we as individuals and we as a church, indeed all of the true churches of Jesus Christ in our country, would be bright shining lights like cities set upon a hill that would shine into this dark nation of ours at this particular time. Lord, do this for the glory of Christ, for the spread of the gospel, for the spread of the kingdom of Jesus Christ even today in our land. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.